Father, as we come to your word today, it feels like the well is deep and I have nothing with which to draw. So, Spirit of God, speak to us through your word. Speak to us those words of eternal life. Teach us. Train us. Mold us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We've been asking ourselves the question, what really is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And we've been looking together at this passage from Acts chapter 2. First, it means that we're devoted. We're devoted to God, and we're devoted in four different ways we've been looking at. First, to the Word of God, the apostles' teaching. Secondly, to fellowship, to one another, to the breaking of bread, to worship. And fourthly, to prayer. We have that heart, that life that is devoted to those four things. That is the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But then the passage continues. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we are devoted to those four things, but also our response and the response of those early disciples, those early followers of Christ, were that they were all filled with awe. What is awe? What, is, what does it mean that they were filled with awe? It's a word we often use, isn't it? But I'm not sure we ever really stop to try and understand what it really is talking about. What is, what does it mean to be filled with awe? Well, a couple of people described it like this. Awe is, well, it's that fear mingled with reverence and wonder, a state of mind inspired by something terrible or something sublime. Somebody else said it was like this. It's somewhere between the upper reaches of pleasure and the boundary of fear. Quite like that one. When you stand at the top of a mountain and you can see the whole vista out in front of you, if you're like me and you don't like heights, there's a certain pleasure about being there. One, you know it's downhill from then on in. It's always good news. But there's a, there's a pleasure in being there because it's just so, you know what I'm talking about. You can't describe it to someone else, can you? Breathtaking. You know, you take a picture on your camera and, it, and it's pathetic. Because you show someone else and, and they just don't get the feeling that you have when you're standing there. But it's also terrifying at the same time because you can see so much and you, you recognize yourself in all of that. Or is this? This is a true story, apparently. There was a woman who, in Kansas City in the United States, fancied some ice cream, so she went to a Hagen dazs store for ice cream. 
She went in there. She went up to the, the counter for an ice cream cone. And after getting the, uh, the cone, she turned around and or she heard behind her somebody else in the queue. And she turned around and saw Paul Newman, the actor, standing right behind her in the haagen store because apparently they were filming Mr. and Mrs. Bridges in the town, and he obviously had the same thought of, as her to go and get some ice cream. He said, hello, and his radiant blue eyes and his cool way, and her knees began to shake. So she managed to pull herself together enough to pay for her cone, and then she left her shop with her heart pounding. When she got outside, her, she managed to regain her composure somewhat, but she suddenly realized that she didn't have her ice cream cone. So she turned around to go back into the store to pick up her ice cream cone, and out came, as she was just about to enter, Paul Newman with his ice cream cone holding the door for her. He said to her, are you looking for your ice cream? She didn't know what to say, so she just nodded. He said, I think you'll find you put it in your purse with your change. And off he walked. That's all. When, when you have that feeling of awe, you sometimes do crazy things. Sometimes the horizons kind of, I don't know, you know what I'm talking about. Awe. They were filled with awe. Awe has two aspects to it. The first is this. It makes us think about our insignificance. When we think about awe, we think about how small we are. Have you ever laid out of a night and just stared at the sky? What does it make you feel? You, you look up there and you see... I used to do this in Africa all the time because there's no lights around. And you can see the Milky Way and the planets and the whole sky. It's just incredible. The psalmist said it like this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. When you lie there and you look up in the sky at night, you just feel so small and insignificant, don't you? You think about all these different planets and stars and things we don't even understand. And you think... There's little me sitting here, lying here, just looking up at this vast heavens. What, what am I? Who am I? Do I matter? That's awe. Awe makes us think about how insignificant we truly are. The Bible is full of awe. It causes us to ask, really, who am I? And we realize our insignificance. Let's look together. Genesis chapter 3. The snake comes to Eve and says, 
See that apple over there? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a golden delicious. It's not a Granny Smith's. It's juicy. It's sweet. And he says, no, 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 we're not supposed to touch it. And the snake says what? It says, if you touch it, you'll be like God. And then it says that she saw it and Adam was completely useless. Didn't stop her. She took it, gave it to him. He took it. And what happened? Their eyes were opened. And what happened was that they began to see for the first time the difference between them and God. The snake, Satan, was true what he said. Because all of a sudden, what did they do when God came walking? They went and hid. Why? They knew they were naked. They were ashamed. They suddenly realized who God is and who they were. And when they realized that, they went and they hid. Exodus chapter 3. There was a bush that caught on fire. And Moses went up because he said, hey, it's not burning up. This is like an everlasting barbecue. He went up to it, and what happened? God said, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground because you're coming into my presence. And Moses started coming with fear and with trepidation. In chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses is there in his tent of meeting, and he's talking to God, and he says to God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll do that. But it says that, he says, you can't see my glory in all its fullness. Why? Because the distance between me and you is so great. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to place my hand over your face so you can kind of feel it. You can experience it as my glory passes by, but you can never see it. Because the distance between God and us is so great that we can't approach who God is. Second Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel, this is the passage where the Ark of the Covenant was taken into battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines won, and they stole the Ark. Do you remember? And then the Ark comes back because it causes all kinds of trouble, and the Philistines said, we don't want this. Send it back. So they sent it back on a cart, and they see it coming. And Uzziah, what does he do? The ark starts to fall off the cart, and what happens? He reaches out, and he touches it, and he pushes it. And what happens to Isaiah? He's dead. He dies right there and then. Why? Because the distance between God and humanity is so great. And it says David, from that moment, feared the Lord. He feared God because he suddenly realized who God truly is and who we are. And David became afraid. 1 Kings chapter 19. The Lord appears to Elijah and he says, I'm going to appear to you in the mouth of a cave. And when the Lord starts appearing, in the, he's not in the storm and he's not in, you remember that bit? 
And it says, Elijah, when he suddenly hears the voice of God and recognizes that God is going to come, it says he puts a cloak over his face to hide himself because he recognizes who he is as God's prophet, but who God is. And he recognizes that there's no way he can be in the same place. He can't see God. So he hides his face with a cloak over it. In Job, beautiful story, isn't it? Job, for 37 chapters, there's mumbling and grumbling. Why is this happening to me? It's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And all his friends, so-called friends, turn up and tell him why, why, why he's messed up, why this is happening, because God is like this. And It's not fair, he says. And then in Job chapter 38 and 39, what happens? God turns up. Finally, God's had enough of his whinging, comes along and says, okay, I'll give you an answer to all your questions, but first you have to answer me. And there's those amazing chapters in Job where God says, were you there when this happened? Do you really understand, is what God is saying. In other words, he's saying, are you, Job, at my level? If you understand the way I understand, if you can be where I am, then by all means, I'll tell you the answer to your, your questions. And what does Job say? He says, basically, what an idiot I've been. I'm going to shut my mouth, and I'm not going to speak. Why? Because he says, what can I say? And what God does in the book of Job is he shows us where God is and where we are and the gulf in between the two. Well, what about in Psalms? So many of the Psalms talk about it. Psalm 33. In verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. All the people revere Him. And over and over again in the Psalms, like Psalm 8 that we said, we read earlier, talks about how we need to be in awe of God because of who God is and the distance between God and us. Proverbs 9.10 says what? You know this one. Famous passage in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Thank you, Liz. You're the only intelligent person in the whole house here. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. What? It's not saying cowering fear. It's saying that awe, that understanding about who God is, that is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? Then understand what awe is about because that's the start of it. Isaiah 6. Isaiah's commissioning. What happens? He's taken up into the courts of heaven. And what happens when he sees the very courts of heaven? What does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me. In other words, curse me, God. Bring every single curse you can think of on top of me because I am a man of unclean lips and I, I live among a people who are unclean as well. And he recognizes when he's taken into the courts of heaven the distance that there is between the holiness and the majesty of who God is and who he is. And he says, you know what? I'm, I'm completely, I'm toast. I don't even know how God hasn't zapped me dead right now. Because how can I even be here 
when God is like this and I am like this. And the people I come from are like this. I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't be here. And then God goes and gets a coal, doesn't he, out of the, out of the furnace. And he, he heals him, his, his tongue and all the symbolism that goes with that. Or in Jeremiah chapter 5, one of the prophecies of Jeremiah, God says in verse 22, you guys, you think, you think you're so clever? But really, I see everything that you're doing. You should fear me. You should tremble in my presence. God says, because you're not, because you're so arrogant and you're so proud and you think of yourself so elevated. He says, you, you, you're, you're just crazy because you don't understand who I really am and what I'm capable of. And one of my favorite passages in Habakkuk, let me try and find it for you. Habakkuk, chapter 3. Habakkuk is a book about complaining again about the people of Israel. And the Lord keeps answering. And in Habakkuk, chapter 3, he says, Lord, I've heard your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day and in our time and make them known in the wrath. Remember mercy. But then in verse 16, when God shows up, this is what Habakkuk says. He says, I heard, I heard your voice, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. You see, God suddenly turned up, and Habakkuk suddenly realized that he was in the presence of of the Almighty. And so his heart started pounding, his lips started quivering, his knees started trembling, and he felt decay throughout his body because he realized where he was. Well, we go into the New Testament. There's so many different passages we could use. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember them? Said, hey, we're going to sell our semi in Harrow. Don't need it anymore. We're downsizing. We're moving out to Pinner just to a little bungalow. Actually, Carpenter's part. They've got more pit, uh, bungalows out there. We don't, we don't need that semi in, in, uh, in Harrow anymore. So we're going to give all the proceeds to the church. They didn't have to do that. But that's what they said, and they made a big proclamation. We're going to give everything that we don't need. We're going to give it to the church. And then when the check came through, they suddenly thought, wow, that's quite a lot of money. We could do a cruise out of this. And a few other holidays besides. So let's just let's give them ten grand or something and, and call it quits. And we'll keep the rest. And they came in, didn't they? And they gave a made a big thing, gave it to Peter, and he said, Here it is, here's here's the rest of the money. And Peter said, Really? Are you serious? I went on right move. I saw how much you got for that. And they said, you know what, you're sinning against God. You didn't have to do this in the first place, but you're making this big proclamation, and now you're, you're trying to hide it and think we're... You're actually sinning against what you promised God. And what happened? Drop dead. And then Sapphira came in and said, hey, because she didn't know where her husband was, and she made the same mistake. 
No, no, this is everything. She died. And it says the whole church was filled with fear and awe about what God is truly like. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, John is taken up into the very courts of heaven. And what does he say he does? He says he falls flat on the ground as though he's dead. He says, I, I don't want to look. I don't, just Let me just lie here. Pretend I'm not here. I can't be in this place. But Jesus picks him up and says, hey, I brought you here for a reason. Revelation chapter 4, the passage where he's taken into the throne room and he sees all this, the winged creatures around the throne and every time they sing, the elders are all bowing down and worshiping God. And he sees the magnificence of who God is in the visions of Revelation. He sees God in his splendor and in his holiness and in his majesty. You see, our response when we understand who God is, is twofold. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus takes his disciples on a fishing expedition. And he shouts at Peter and he says, drop your net the other side and every single fish in the whole of the ocean decides to jump into his net and he can't get it in. And what does Peter do? He abandons his mates. He jumps over the side of the boat. He comes up to Jesus on the shore and he says, get away from me. Because I'm a sinful man standing before a holy God. When you recognize who God is, our response is to say, hey, I can't be here with you. You need to get away from me or I have to get away from you. Or the other response is that we just do what John did and we fall on the ground in fear and in trepidation. Because God is holy. God is separate. God is something other than we are. God is holy Holy, holy. We sang it this morning. What does that mean? It means he's, he's separate, right? And three times in the Bible means he's the ultimate in separation from you and me. He's the ultimate indifference from you and me. God is not just holy. He's holy, holy. He's separated, separated, separated. You can't get much more separated than that. That is the definition of separation, of difference. And this is what the elders sing or they, they say is who was and is and is to come. You are holy. You are the Lord God Almighty. And when we think about who God is, when we think about the awe of God, it makes us recognize that we are not. That God is out there and we're not. And so we have to conclude, you know what? I am Nothing. There is nothing that you are that God needs. There is nothing that you can bring to God that He, that he needs from you. We are absolutely nothing. And we need to understand that when we understand the awareness and the, the holiness of God. God doesn't need us. And there is nothing we can do, there is nothing we can offer to make God need us. 
How many of you have ever made deals with God in your prayers? God, do this, and I'll do this. It's the most stupid thing we can do, right? As if God needed anything from me. As if I've got anything with which to bargain with God. God doesn't need you and me. God is God. And I'm nothing. I'm nothing to God. And we need to understand that when we come to Him. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bargain with. I am nothing to God. But I said there are two parts to all, right? That's the first part. The second part is this. That when I come to God, I realize my significance to God. Now, I am significant to God, not because I can bring God anything. I'm significant to God in a different way. Deuteronomy 7, 7, let me read that to you. It says this. The Lord did not accept, this is talking to the people of Israel. It said, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he made, he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What is God saying there? He's saying, it's not because you have anything to offer, but it's because I chose to love you. John 3.16 says what? Liz, the wisest person in Trinity. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God chooses to love us. Not because we are worthy of love, not because we have anything to offer God, but because God, 1 John 4, because God is love. John 15, 10, Jesus says, you know what? He said, if you remain, if you keep my commands, my love will remain in you, just as I have been obedient and kept my Father's commands, and he remains in me. His love remains in me. He said, I choose to love you, and because I choose to love you, if you remain in that, if you, if you do what I'm asking you to do, then I promised you that my love will stay within you. John 15, 15, following on from that, he says this. He says, you know what? I'm not going to call you servants any longer. You're no longer slaves. You're no longer servants. But now I'm going to call you my friends. 
Because a servant doesn't understand what his master's really all about, but you do. Because I'm telling it to you. Because I love you. And so now you're my friends. And in verse 16 of John's gospel, he says, you know what? I chose you. I chose you to go and bear fruit. Out of all the people in the world, I, I've decided that it's you that I want. It's like a lineup. And he says, I want you, and I want you, and I want you, and I want you to go and bear fruit for me. I'm choosing you. I want you so that I can pour my love into you. Now just do what I'm asking you to do so that that love can grow and stay and be part of who you truly are. Which is why in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, you know what? You're no longer servants. You know what? You're no longer even friends. What are you? Your sons and your daughters of God. In fact, you are co-heirs, he says, with Jesus Christ. Why? Because you can offer something to God? No. Because God loves and has chosen to love you and love me. And says, you know what? I've adopted you into my family. Just because. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, you know what? Unlike in the Old Testament, because you are now God's family, you can approach his throne with confidence. Isn't that incredible? Even though God is so different, so holy, and we are not holy through Christ and through what Christ has done on the cross, he says, hey, you're my son, my daughter. Any of you had really beautiful grandparents? You know what it's like when you're younger and you see your grandparents? What do they do? Your parents slap you around the head, right? What do your grandparents do? They spoil your rotten, right? They say, hey, come on. This is my granddaughter. This is my grandson. And they have authority over your parents. It's awesome, isn't it? So they say, hey, leave them alone. This is, this is my, come and sit here. Hey, I've got something for you. Slip your fiver. Or in our day, like 2p or something, wouldn't it? <laughs> but anyway, but you thought it was a fortune, right? Or they give you sweets on the quiet. Shh, don't tell your parents. This is our little secret, right? It's laid out with God. Even though God is so different, so out there, so unapproachable. He says, David, you're part of the family. Come. I've given you the key. Come. Come in. That's what Christ has done for us. And so in Hebrews 12, it says, Worship the God, therefore, with thankfulness, and with reverence and with awe. This is the worship that God accepts. With thankfulness, with reverence, and with awe. Now the difficulty is this. 
The difficulty is that we so often go between one extreme or the other. Either God is so far out there, I just worship him like some grandparent at Christmas and I send them a card, but I don't really know him. And we negate what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Or God is my friend and God is this and God is that and he's my best mate. No, he's not. God is God. And I am still nothing. But I am loved. And we need to hold both of those in tension. I am loved. Not because I'm worth it, but because God chooses to love. Because God is love, right? I can't earn that love. I don't deserve that love, which is great. You know why? Because I cannot lose it either. I cannot mess it up. Even the biggest sin that I ever commit cannot stop God loving me because he chooses to love me. I have nothing to start with. Do you understand? But he says, I'm going to love you anyway. And no amount of, I can't earn anything. I can't ever get to a point where I kind of manipulate that love. He just loves because he loves. Because he loves. The cross is the greatest symbol of how much he loves you and me. For God so loved the world that he died to show you how much he loves you. Not because you're worth it, but because you're not worth it. It's easy to love somebody who's worth loving, right? But how much more powerful is it to love someone who has nothing, who can give you nothing, who's not even worth loving? That is love, real love. You see, all needs both. It needs us to recognize the magnitude, the holiness, and the awesomeness of God, right? But it also needs us to recognize how much God loves us. I want to ask you something today. In Acts 2.43, it says everybody was filled with awe. That means they understood both sides. They understood the holiness of God, that I am nothing, but they understood also that I am loved, tremendously loved by God. Let me ask you today, do you, do you get that? When you came to worship today, what were you feeling? Do you come into his sanctuary today like Moses going towards the burning bush going, I'm not worthy to be here in God's house to worship him. But I'll come because he invites me. When you pray to him, do you pray, Lord, I'm not worthy even to talk to you. But I will because you love me. And you invite me. How do you come to God? Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord, or 
which is the same thing, is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't understand the holiness of God and that we are nothing, that I am nothing, but also understand that God loves me even though I'm nothing, then you'll never have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've got to understand it. Because otherwise you come on some other agenda towards Christ that he doesn't accept. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of that relationship. Because it's the worship that God accepts. God is holy, holy, holy. But God loves you. So much that he was willing to die for you. To show you the depth of his love. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. We sang that. We echoed those words in the book of Revelation. The book of Isaiah. You are completely other to us. And I am nothing before you. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to bring you. I can't bargain with you. I can't demand anything of you. I can't. I should just fall on my face. Or say like Peter, get away from me because I shouldn't be here. But as you did to Peter, you say, no, come, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I don't know why you would love us. But you are love. For God so loved the world. That Jesus, you came to show us what love is all about. To love the unlovable like me. Thank you. And Lord, help me to keep those two opposites in my life. To never bring you down to my level, that's no good. Forgive me when I do that. Or to never try and lift myself up to your level, because I can never do that either. But to know that I am your son, your daughter co-heir with Christ because of what you have done. That's grace. Thank you. In the name of Christ. Amen.